I'd like to repeat Nathan's word of gratitude. Thank you for your good singing this morning. It's wonderful, wonderfully powerful. We were indeed lifting our voices and shouting joy to the Lord. You may have observed in front of us, we have the elements for the Lord's table, which we observed the first Sunday of the month. And if you didn't build that into your schedule, we would understand if you need to slip out the back uh, before we partake of that, there will be an opportunity for you to do that following the conclusion of the sermon. But we would encourage you to stay and enjoy the Lord's table with us. If you're visiting today, my name is Greg. I serve as the senior pastor here, and it's my privilege to open the word to you. Uh, for those of you who are our regulars, um, um, next week I will be down in Mountain Green preaching uh, at a church there to perhaps raise some money, hopefully, for our parsonage project. And um, the following week, I will be on vacation. And so th this will be, uh, even though I'll be around for the next 10 days or so, this will be the last you see me in the pulpit for a couple of weeks. So, um, so hopefully uh, the Lord will bless all these endeavors. Let's pray, and then we'll get into our text today. Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for allowing us to praise you as in fulfillment of these very words. And I pray that you would give us great grace to see truth from this passage today. Lord, I pray that you would work something in us, something that the DNA of our church so desperately needs, and that is to become a place that looks not just to the salvation of the nations, but that sees people all over this world entering relationship with you in such a way that they're overflowed with joy and gratitude for what you've done for them. May we play a vital role in seeing individuals all over this world get to know you and your ways, which are steadfast love and mercy. Empower us for this task. And may the message of this psalm bury itself deep in our hearts so that it bears much fruit. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The man who wrote these words was a king, a great king, a mighty king. He was a warrior king. But he didn't start out that way. The author of this psalm was the youngest of eight boys. You think about that for just a moment, the youngest of eight. My youngest of five has a certain attitude about him. And everybody says, well, that's the youngest for you. David was, of course, no different. He was a talented boy, but he certainly did not have anything about him that promised the heights that he would attain. He was given shepherd duty. And all of his older brothers were bigger, more athletic, better looking than him. In fact, there was another king in the land who was a warrior king as well. And David's prospects for life were, frankly, very slim until one day an old man showed up at his door. And this old man took out a flask of oil and poured it over David's head and said, you are going to be the king of my people. David had done nothing for this privilege. David had showed nothing that would commend him to all the peoples around him that would say, now that's a king. God in his sovereignty, who tests hearts, who knows people, had chosen David out of his mercy 
and set upon him this regal seal and said, you're mine, you're going to rule. And from that moment forward, the events in David's life, the pace that things picked up, took on remarkable effect. Before you know it, David is in King Saul's presence, playing music to cheer up the king. And here David is getting a first-hand view of the inner workings of a kingdom. And then David is, of course, thrust into the limelight when he slays Goliath. Suddenly David is in charge of large swaths of the army and people are praising him. Everything he does prospers. David goes on the run from this king who'd grown jealous of him. And in all of these trials, God worked something in the heart of David that comes out in all of these songs. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Bible, the Psalter is the Old Testament's hymnal. It's our worship guide. And David wrote the majority of them. There's a psalm for just about every season of life. And here, David has been reflecting on something. You see, many of you are, have been brought up in a religious-type environment where words and prayers and songs are repeated so frequently that they start to lose their meaning. Such was the case with David. Such was the case with temple worship. There's a phrase that we're going to talk about in just a minute. But this man, whom God chose, who said has a heart after his own, has been meditating on those very words. So we've had you turn to Psalm 67, and right here in the very first words we see, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. I'd like us just to make some first observations about this passage before we get too much farther. This is a thematic intro. Imagine if I were to begin the sermon, praise God from whom all blessings flow. What would come to your mind? Well, of course, the doxology. Or if I were to begin my sermon, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You would have a very familiar tune and word and thought going through your mind that you've heard many, many times before. And such is the case when David begins with these words, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. I have up here number 6, 22 through 27. This was a priestly benediction that the priests were supposed to say every time the Israelites came and made a sacrifice at the temple. Now again, those who are just going through the religious motions, those who are coming to church just because they think the mere fact of coming to church will do them some good, not that they had church back then, but those who were going to the temple just for the rote benefit of it, these words would have washed over their head and they would have given it no further thought. But every time a sacrifice was made, every time an offering was given, the priest was supposed to say over the offerer, over the worshiper, may God be gracious to you. May God bless you. May God make his face to shine upon you. The benediction continues. But the point of the benediction, as we'll find out in just a few minutes, is 
is that it's a mark of God's ownership. Now here's the thing. Here was this priestly blessing being told over the top of countless people, countless peoples who came and brought their offerings. And for 500 years, that benediction went without explanation. Simply the mere comment that this is how God would put his name on his people. And 500 years later, David tells us why. Look at the first word of verse 2. That your way may be known on the earth. That your way. Now, this psalm divides up into three distinct sections. I have this right here. I say, note the selahs because the structure of the psalm follows. For those of you who are new to the Bible and you've been reading through, maybe you've come to the Psalter and you've seen some of these words out in the right-hand column that say selah. It's, it, it could be one of two things, depending on the psalm, depending on the makeup of the psalm. These were to be written to music. These were to be sung. And a selah was a musical interlude. It was supposed to be a time to, for the singers to stop and for reflection to be made. But very often when the psalm writer puts these selahs in here, he's doing it not just so that you can take a break or so that the instrumentalist can show up. It's being put in there so that the message of what preceded will be reflected on and perhaps even prepare you for the message that comes next. So it would be like in one of our hymns today whose message through the song builds. Having a pause where the pianist plays and the little words appear on the screen that say, think about what you just sang and apply it to what you're about to sing. And so David here gives this very familiar opening. May God bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you. And then he says, think about that. So that. And from there, the psalm breaks into a couple of distinct portions. The first verse is, of course, the benediction. Verses 2 through 4, if you look at that next little Selah section, is the purpose. It's the purpose. That. Why should God grace us? Why should God bless us? Why should God make his face to shine upon us? So that. He's going to pursue that purpose. And then there's another Selah. After verse 4, and a Verse 5 picks up the final section. Notice the change of tone. He repeats, let all the peoples praise you, but then we come. And suddenly we see in verse 7, at the end of verse 6, God shall bless us. Yes, God shall bless us. And so here the tone changes from present tense, God please do this to a conviction more outward, God will do this. God has done this, and God will continue to do it. There's this conviction of what's just been said that's going to move forward. So, now that we've got our structure in place, benediction, purpose, and conviction, that's how our three points are going to divide up today, to divide up today. Benediction, purpose, and conviction. Let's look at that first verse, the benediction. This benediction was about... Identity. You can look at number 627. The priests were to say this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. This benediction 
was spoken over the people countless times. And it was a mark that was a mark of identity. Now you think about this. Think about all the different religions in the world, how those religions mark their people to communicate that those people belong to a certain God. Perhaps there's a marking on their skin or on their forehead. Perhaps it's a distinct brand of clothing that they're supposed to wear. Perhaps it's that they shave their heads or that they tattoo themselves. Perhaps it's a special diet or a special look that they carry about them or a special piece of jewelry they wear. All of these have been done and are could come up with abundant examples today. But how does God want his people to be marked? How does God want his people to be identified? He wants them to be identified with this invisible blessing that hangs over their heads. With this invisible mark of his grace and mercy and kindness, his invisible smile hanging over them. So that when people look at these people, they say there must be something different about that God because of their countenance, because of their blessedness, because of the way they share in this grace. This is how my people are to be marked by my blessing, shining face, and mercy and grace. It's amazing. Well, like I said, David has been reflecting on this. This word, grace, Grace. It's not uh, the typical Hebrew word for grace. It's actually a little bit of a different word. And it's used infrequently in the Old Testament. It's referred to in the book of Genesis when Esau sees all the children of Jacob, and Jacob says, yes, God graced me with these children. The blessing of of children. The blessing of supply. So on and so forth. But then we come to the Psalter, and the man after God's own heart, suddenly the uses of this word grace explode. The word is used 32 times in the Psalter. It can mean help and affliction. The fourth Psalm and the sixth Psalm are all about God coming to help him in times of deep affliction. One is in Psalm 6, it's an internal struggle that he's having. In Psalm 4, people are afflicting him. In Psalm 9, enemies have surrounded him, and he wants help. And he's begging God for grace. The word can also mean forgiveness of sins, which you can find in Psalm 41.4. Or do you remember? Now, this isn't ordinary grace. This isn't regular grace that covers normal sins that polite people would be petty not to forgive. In Psalm 51, David is guilty of adultery and murder and lying. His hypocrisy and lies infected his soul. He's certain he deserves the death penalty, and he does. This is the word he uses to cover those types of sins. Forgive me, grace for I have sinned. Sins of the deepest, God. When he says the word bless, this word 
generally means material gain. In Genesis 26.12 or Job 42.12, God blesses Isaac, God blesses Job far more than when he had, than what he had before. This word bless also means to set apart for a special use. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, we're told that God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, separate for his use. We're told in Judges 13.24 that God blessed Samson and set him apart for special use as his judge in the kingdom. When we put these concepts together, we see God's special and unique equipping God's abundant supply for special service. For service that he has alone allotted for his people. When he says to shine his face, what does this mean? It's, it's the specific grace of restoration. You've made a mess of your life, Psalm 80. God, restore me. I've made a mess of things. I'm broken. I was created in your image in this beautiful thing, and I've wrecked it. Would you restore it? One of the things my children and I enjoy doing is watching restoration videos on YouTube. They'll take random items that are very old, and by very old, 100 years old, and they use all sorts of equipment to make these things that time has weathered and worn and broken down and they make them perfect again. And my kids, when we watch them, are always a world of questions. Dad, why is he doing this? Dad, why is he doing that? Dad, why is this happening? And I'll tell them now, just as I've told them many times before, and I'll tell you, I have no idea why they're doing that. I've never welded anything in my life. I like to play with wood, not metal, but that's primarily what these guys do. All I know is that they're awesome now. It was broken. Now it's whole. It's whole. When God shines his smiling face on a man or woman, the broken is made whole. What was ruined by sin and decay and years of waste suddenly comes to life beautiful usefulness to the Lord. Redemption, restoration. May God grace us, bless us, and make his face to shine on us. May God forgive us. May God supply us for special use. May God restore us so that our purpose can be made fully capable again. Stop. Think about it. Why does God do such things? Why does God want these three things to be spoken over you and become a re reality? Why does God want this to be your identifying mark? Why does God want this to be the very thing 
that when people from the outside looking in see, they go, oh, he must belong to God. Is it so you're blessed? Is it so you possess what you need? Is it so you're restored and made beautiful again? Well, yes. But that's only half the story. It's only half the story. And that brings us to our second point, the purpose. We're going to pick up our pace a little bit from here on out so you know. That he restores, he graces, he shines his face. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The, the that is specific. It's right at the very front of the sentence. It's actually only one Hebrew letter at the beginning of a word. But it's clear, and it rings forth with this clarion sound. That. Because, so that, purpose. Your life is to be lived in such a way that the nations, the peoples, will come into relationship with God and will praise him for all his ways. This word, the, the, your way may be known on earth. Now, this could be very confusing, right? If I were to say, your way may be known on the earth, uh, your saving power among all nations. Does this mean that God is saying, what, what I really want, what I really want is for you to take the way I want you to live your life to these people. And I, I want you to start with my moral law and, and go from there. I, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think you can actually feel at liberty to insert two words into your Bible because this fills out the idea. Okay, That your way, singular, your way, may be known in the earth, comma, which is your saving power among the nations. Your way is salvation. Your way is love and mercy. In fact, I have here Psalm 25.10. This is a cross-reference you definitely need to write down because all the ways of the Lord, Psalm 25.10, are steadfast love. All the ways of the Lord are steadfast love and mercy. God is gracing you, shining his face on you, restoring you, supplying you, setting you apart so that all the people that you come into contact with will praise God for his saving ways. For his ways which are steadfast love and mercy. This is your purpose. This is the purpose for God's blessing in your life. This is the purpose for God's kindness and grace and mercy. He says, be glad. Shout for joy. This is wholehearted acceptance of God and his ways. We're not coming to people with a sort of a, a one message thing. We, we want people to enter relationship with God such that they find his word to be superior. They find his ways to be wonderful and merciful and kind. They begin communing with God and walking with God, talking with God. And suddenly they're taken in their souls with the goodness and grandeur and mercy of God. Now they're the ones that are instructing you on what it means to walk with God and speak with him. They've 
accepted wholeheartedly and gladly. This isn't, this isn't rote religiosity. This isn't legalism. No, no. This is a person who's captured what it means to know God and walk with him and relish his salvation. God has blessed you for this very purpose. Note how God wants to advance his relationship with the people he saves. Notice the progression here. Salvation to worship, to teaching and guidance. Notice that progression. God expects worship from those he saves, and he teaches those whom he loves and whom he sets his seal on. He gives them, he teaches them specific things about his word, and then in all those areas of life where his word doesn't specifically speak to, he guides them. He guides their way and moves them along where he wants them to be. God leads those in his steadfast love, those whom he has redeemed, says Miriam in the book of Exodus. God is sending us God is blessing us, equipping us, giving us everything we need such that we can see the peoples to the ends of the earth enter this sort of relationship with God and perpetuate it forward. And that brings us to our third point, conviction. I want you to notice in verses 5 through 7 how David's tone changes. Let all the peoples praise you. Oh God, let all the peoples praise you. This is a repetition. I want us to notice how worship is prioritized. Three different times, he says, let all the peoples praise you. At the beginning of the psalm, he says, let the people shout for joy. Let them sing for joy. At the very end of the passage, it's let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is a, the word for hold in reverence, to awe. It's been said many times, and it's absolutely right, that the end of missions is worship. The great need in this world is that people are worshiping the wrong things. They're worshiping themselves. They're worshiping animals. They're worshiping gods of their own creation. God alone will be worshiped. And when people come to know him as this sort of saving, kind God, they automatically worship and praise him for who he is, and that is the ultimate end for why God is saving and sending so that he will be worshipped yet more and more. He wants our entire lives to be about worship. Furthermore, furthermore, I don't have it in my notes here, but I want us, I want us to see the connection between joy and worship. God, God sincerely desires for his people to be the most joyful, restful people on this planet. And that attitude commends the gospel almost as well as anything else. Now, do events happen in life that get us down? Well, of course they do. Do things happen that cause us to grieve? Well, yes. And 
God's people surround you and help you and rally to you. And you can sort of, you can sort of coast on the joy of others when you're feeling down. The other day I was, I, I rode my bicycle from my house out to Huntsville and back. And uh, because um, I've never really grown up, I put a timer on myself and see how fast I can do it, okay? And I got to Huntsville three minutes faster than I've ever done it in my life. And I thought, man, I must be a really fit guy. I must, I must be getting ready for the Olympics or something. I was really feeling salty about myself. Rode around Huntsville, got a little water, turned around to come back home, and what hit me in the face but about a 25-mile-an-hour wind? And I thought, oh, that's why I was so fast. <laughs> I had a wind pushing me. And then on the way home, I set an all-time record slow. <laughs> because now I had to fight the wind coming back instead of having it push me. When we're down, when we're low, when events have leveled us, God's people can rally around you and help you, and you can, you can get pushed along, can't you? You can get pushed along. And when the world sees that happening, joyful people surrounding hurting people and moving them forward, that commends the gospel. Well, I want us to notice the change of tone. There's a certainty of divine blessing. David says this, he says, the earth has yielded its increase. In other words, he's looking back. That's a past tense. Look, at the, the fields are... Our white God has provided. We have store. We have food. We have supply. We're primed. We're ready. David looks back at God's supply and draws a conclusion about the future. That doesn't mean we're to hoard our resources now. David says, "No, that supply that He's given us must mean that He's about to now start to do something marvelous." As it relates to God's, as it relates to the nations and the peoples around us, God is supplying us now, has supplied us now, so that the nations will come to praise Him in the future. Now I want you to know that David got a hold of this. David understood this, and David, God, threw onto David great wealth. Great supply, marvelous prosperity. And David's son Solomon, at the beginning of his reign, also understood this. Why do you think of all the things that Solomon did? How many decades did Solomon reign? How many decisions did he make? How many cities did he build? How many walls did he erect? And what do we have? We have a whole chapter of a foreign queen visiting him and saying, praise the Lord for you. Here was a fulfillment of Psalm 67 right before Solomon's eyes. But friends, do you know what happened? 
You know what happened? Solomon fell in love with the wrong things. He fell in love with his wealth. He fell in love with his women. He fell in love with the freedom and boredom that came with having more than he knew what to do with. And this supply, the blessing, the grace, the restoration that God gave so the nations would praise him, did not live past Solomon. He didn't. He didn't live past him. God would work that in future kings, of course. But not past Solomon. And so, friends, I want to make one application before we go to the Lord's table. Psalm 67 is an earnest prayer that must become part of our church's DNA. Now, if I could say this, I've seen our body taking great strides in the last couple of years in its attentiveness to the ministry of evangelism. In our attentiveness to seeing the gospel and the kingdom of God move forward. I want to see that work further. I want to see that work driven home such into our hearts that every amount of supply, every little grace, every little thing the Lord does, we immediately begin to interpret that as, God must want me to use this for the salvation of souls such that people worship him. And our lives become about the currency of souls. Does that make sense? Now, I think, I, I don't think, I know, I know God is working that in us. If like those 25 mile an hour winds could push me over to Huntsville, if I could give us a push today in the direction that God is already pushing Let us begin to think differently about every ounce of supply, every little grace, every little blessing, every time he shines his face. Let us begin to think in the currency of souls. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to begin to apply Psalm 67 in a way that would see your kingdom advance. Lord, I pray, I pray that this sort of international zeal for worship of you 
would work its way into the fiber of our church. May we become people who are so zealous for your glory worldwide that we would think of all of our sum and substance as being given for that very purpose. Lord, begin this sort of praise in our own hearts. How can we call the world to worship out of joyful gratitude for your saving ways if we ourselves aren't there yet? And so instill in us, O oh God, gratitude and thankfulness for all the salvation that you brought among us. We thank you and we praise you that all your ways are steadfast love. reflect and meditate on that truth. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.